0: This week, Benjamin Netanyahu's message to Australia. The Israeli Prime Minister tells an Australian reporter why we all need to support Israel's campaign of punishment of Hamas for the crimes of October 7. Tens of thousands march for Palestine and a ceasefire in major cities all over the world. Ben Shapiro faces angry Muslim students at Oxford University.
1: This is not a just war. What Israel is doing is not a just war. There is a difference between Wait, fighting oh, oh, the Nazis. So it, is, so it is not it's a, a just war to
2: it is not a just war. When you fight a war against people who murder 1,500 of your civilians and take 233 of them, at last count, captive into tunnels. It is not a just war to obliterate them. Please it's, name a just war.
0: And what is the Ark? conference. Is it the classical liberal answer to the socialist globalist WEF? We will explain and bring you some of the highlights from Jordan Peterson and our very own Fred Paul who's there for ADH. G'day Darwin, g'day Launceston, g'day Cape Town, g'day Australia, and welcome to episode 230 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday night, the 3rd of November, 2023. I'm Damien Currie, and this is the show that you should disagree with every now and again, because we're presenting views and ideas from a different perspective than the mainstream media here in Australia, which especially in the realm of government funded media is extremely left wing in its worldview which would not be a problem, except they pretend they're presenting the news neutrally when they're not, and you're being forced to pay for it. We declare our bias right up front. We bring you the news from a classical liberal centre-right lens, which we believe is the way to look at the world which is closer to the truth. And we invite you to explore that with us and disagree where you will. We're not forcing you to pay for this show like the ABC does, but we love having you watch every week. So welcome. There are a lot of people in Australia and the UK who are really certain that they are on the right side of history and calling for Israel not to continue its war on Hamas in the tiny but heavily populated Palestinian Gaza Strip, like these marches in London at the weekend. They were there to demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Some were demanding a broader recognition of the Palestinian people, while some extremists were calling for an end to Israel altogether and praising the terrorist Hamas group. Authorities put the number of marches at 100,000, which is about 1% of the population of London, not a small number. Almost all of these protesters were angry at the UK government's refusal to back a ceasefire. The UK's Foreign Secretary, the equivalent of our Foreign Affairs Minister, James Cleverley, said that calls for a ceasefire, quote, aren't going to help the situation, unquote. At the very least, a ceasefire will give Hamas more time to prepare a counter-attack and will cost the lives of young Israeli soldiers. Hamas could end this war tomorrow. Hamas is responsible for the deaths of the innocents. In any case, you can't ask Israel to not defend itself after the horrors of October 7. And although we might wish for a ceasefire for the two million people in Gaza, of them, 30 to 40,000 are Hamas. So what would you do if you were the Israeli Prime Minister with a duty to protect Israelis, Jewish, Arab, Muslim, and Christian Israelis? Well, a couple of days ago, Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, held a news conference ruling out a ceasefire. And it was Channel 7's Chris Reason, perhaps the best TV news reporter in our country and one of the few who still practices real journalism, who put the question to the Prime Minister that is on the minds of so many
3: Australians. Mr Prime Minister, Chris Reason from Channel 7 Australia. I want to ask a question from my country and the people in my country are looking at this and wondering, they agree with you. They want you to chase down Hamas and terrorism, destroy terrorism in in this region, et cetera. But people can't understand why so many have people, civilians, have to die in this process. You argue that Hamas is putting them up as human shields. Is that a good enough excuse? Are you inflicting here uh, collective punishment on the people of
4: Palestine? Not a single civilian has to die. Hamas merely has to let them go to the safe zone that we created in southeastern Gaza Strip. There's a safe zone there. Not a single civilian has to die. But Hamas is preventing them from leaving, keeping them in the areas of conflict. So I think that you should... uh, Direct your questions to Hamas. But I can tell you one thing. We're going out of our way to prevent civilian casualties. Mr Netanyahu said that
0: Australia and other countries around the world need to understand that if the barbaric actions of Hamas on October 7 are allowed to go unpunished, it will have implications for everyone and result in many more deaths in the future.
4: I I think that this question should be placed on Hamas. And the more it's placed on Israel, The more you're going to see this repeated again and again and again. So other groups, other criminal states, other criminal organizations will use civilians as human shields. We cannot give immunity to these terrorists. We cannot give immunity to these savages. We have to do everything we can to minimize civilian casualties. But we cannot give up the fight because then I think this uh, Will have disastrous consequences, not only for the future of my country, but for the future of your country, your countries. This is a battle of civilization against barbarians. The barbarians will do something that civilized countries will never do. And civilized countries will make every effort to prevent this. And I'll give you one example. And I'll end with that because I have to go to uh, manage this war and lead it. In 1944, The Royal Air Force bombed the Gestapo headquarters in Copenhagen. It's a perfectly legitimate target, but the British pilots missed. And instead of the Gestapo headquarters, they hit a children's hospital nearby. And I think 84 children were hardly burned to death. That is not a war crime. That is not something you blame Britain for doing. That was a legitimate act of war with tragic consequences that accompany such legitimate actions. And you didn't tell the allies, don't stamp out Nazism because of such tragic consequences. They went to the end because they knew that the future of our civilization was at stake. Well, I'm telling you right now that the future of our civilization is at stake. We have to win this war, we'll do it by minimizing civilian casualties, and may we succeed. Thank you. That's Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin
0: Netanyahu at his press conference earlier this week. The Australian Jewish community are feeling the pain of not only the attacks of October 7, but the backlash to Israel's response. Australian Jewish Association President David Adler wrote a piece in The Spectator this week saying bluntly, if you were to ask a Jewish friend or work associate, are you okay, and he or she felt able to open up to you, then don't be surprised at receiving a negative response. We're not okay. David says the Australian Jewish community is in a state of shock and not just due to the horrific Hamas terrorist attack on October 7 that saw 1400 people murdered in the most brutal and vile ways imaginable. More than 5000 others injured and 240 taken into Gaza as hostages. Jews in Australia, some whose families date back to the first fleet, are in double shock and trauma. Dr. Adler points out that on a per capita basis, Australia had the highest proportion of Holocaust survivors after Israel. So, he says, it cuts us deeply that the Jewish people have suffered the greatest day of racist murder since the Holocaust. But there are two other major concerns. The first, writes David Adler, is the local developments. The hideous protest at the Opera House, Which wasn't a pro-Palestine rally but an openly vile racist anti-Israel pro-Hamas rally complete with chants of F the Jews and gas the Jews. This is not an expression of political opinion but rather a descent into gross ugly anti-Semitism. Other marches and rallies have chanted from the river to the sea Palestine will be free which is code for the elimination of Israel, David Adler writes. He says, the Australian Jewish Association has received dozens of threats and received numerous reports, including video and audio evidence of Jews in Melbourne and Sydney being threatened. Jewish students have advised of harassment on Australian university campuses. This really annoys me. This is not okay in our country. I don't care what your view is on the Palestine-Israel situation. You leave the violence back in the Middle East. You can voice your opinions, chant in the streets, but threatening actual violence? No, you don't play that out here. We are a sovereign nation and we have our own culture and norms. And despite what the radical left are trying to do to pretend otherwise and tear down our core culture and heritage, don't be fooled that they represent real Australia. If you play out threats of violence or acts of violence in this country, you have no place here, period. Don't mistake the average Aussie's kindness and acceptance and tolerance of all that. We don't tolerate that here, ever. Which brings me to this. Dr Adler writes that there is a second aspect which also needs to be called out as not okay. Namely, the current state of the Australia-Israel relationship officially. He says that unlike over a dozen western leaders including those from the US, UK, France, Germany and others, and despite planning northern hemisphere travel, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese declined the opportunity to include a solidarity visit to Israel. He says the current Australian Labor government may well be judged as the most anti-Israel ever. Elbo and Penny Wong, his foreign affairs minister, have since coming to power withdrawn the limited recognition of Jerusalem as Israel's capital, changed the official terminology in diplomacy, now referring to occupied rather than disputed territories. It has doubled foreign aid in the federal budget to Palestinian territories from 35 million to $70 million per year. David Adler says we should make no mistake. Australian policy has played a part in emboldening the terrorists and their supporters in the Middle East and locally. He says, Australian Labor government policy has poured petrol on the flames of jihad and anti-Semitism. The AJA calls on our government to stand with our traditional ally, Israel. But if you can't actively do that, at least stop the Hamas friendly policies stop doing harm and immediately cease all funding to Palestinian Territories. The European Commission, Austria and even Germany, which can spot Nazi-like behaviour, have all done so, he writes. That's Dr. David Adler, President of the Australian Jewish Association, writing in The Spectator magazine this week. People continue to be rightly horrified by the injustice of war and the killing of civilians. It's it's hard to do, as Benjamin Netanyahu says, and continuously remind ourselves that this is not a war that we should view through the lens of Israel versus Palestine. This is even bigger than Israel versus the terrorist organization Hamas, which is an organization that uses Palestinians to achieve wider regional political goals. It's the sickest of the sick as they proved on October 7. But no, this is a war between the civilized world and Islamic Jihad, an ideology and philosophy that is truly poison to our world and that puts us all at risk. We have to think deeper and better about all of this. And remember, Israel is tiny in the Middle East. It's the little red spot and the simple reality is that Israel has a right to exist and the two-state solution is the only solution. So sorry, but we need to not only stop condemning Israel, but we've got to get behind them. People say this isn't a left-right issue. Well, tell that to the radical left on our Western University campuses Who think that their little woke games they usually play can be extended beyond gender ideology and idiot cries of racism every five seconds sorry kids this is the real world and the real world is ugly this is not just the latest cool fad for you to latch onto with your silly wokeism i'm personally disgusted by the behavior of most australian universities on this and uk universities are even worse Oxford University, no less, has been descending into scary levels of intolerance for diversity of opinion and over-acceptance of identity politics ideologies in recent years. And this was on full display at a recent appearance at the famous Oxford Union Debating Society this week by the young conservative American commentator, devout Jew, and Daily Wire host Ben Shapiro. Ben bravely subjected himself to an hour of torturous questioning from some of the most ignorant yet highly educated young people in the history of the Western world and they are on they are all full of self-confidence and self-righteousness in that ignorance. How do you
5: reconcile your conservative political views um, with the religious values of compassion and your, your own Jewish faith?
2: I, and your, your stance on the Israeli Kazan kind of war. I, I don't see why it's uncompassionate to call for the overthrow of Hamas a terrorist group in the Gaza Strip, which has been oppressing its people and stealing billions of dollars from its own people. Ismail Haniyeh is living in a five star hotel in Qatar while his people are living in absolute misery because of a war that he initiated by killing fifteen hundred people inside Israel proper and then taking two hundred and thirty three hostages. I don't see why that's non compassionate. It seems to me that compassion also requires that you obliterate terrorist threats to your own population.
0: And that guy wasn't the worst one. Ben demolished student after student, including one who was so rude, I refuse to give him the time of day on this show, but you can watch the whole Oxford Union Question Time online. What Ben demonstrated was that every one of those opposing questioners was not accepting of any two-state solution. They accepted no historical claim whatsoever of Jews to any of the region that they believe is occupied Palestine. And that's just not a tenable or acceptable position in 2023. There is one clip from this session that's been going viral, and I want to play you the longer full version of this interaction because I think it's a very, very important one, and it's compelling viewing. It's a little long, but hang in there. It's very good viewing and listening.
1: If Israel is justified in killing civilians because of the acts of terror committed by Hamas, why isn't Hamas justified in doing what it did? Because Israel is keeping 13,000 children; it has tried them in military courts. Since the establishment of Israel, 55,000 Palestinian homes have been bulldozed. So why isn't Hamas justified in doing what it did? If we use your logic.
2: Um, well, so I'm going to answer your question, then I'm going to ask you a question. If you don't mind, is that right? So so my answer is that Israel would not be justified in killing Palestinian civilians because of the actions of terrorists. Israel would be justified in attempting to kill terrorists and civilian casualties are a cost of war. That is just a reality of life. During World War II, there were 70,000 Brits who died during the blitz bombing and there were two million Germans who died, civilians who died during World War II and I don't see a lot of monuments in Britain because of the two million civilians who died in Germany. The costs of war are brutal, they're terrible. They're horrifying. There's a vast difference in moral scope between deliberately going into a civilian area and murdering everyone you can find and trying to kill a terrorist who is deliberately hiding beneath a civilian area, hiding their rockets in civilian areas, starving their own people. There is a vast difference. Okay, so let me, now I get to ask my question, if you don't mind. So my question is, do you believe that there is a moral difference between Hamas going into, for example, Kfar Aza and murdering entire families and Israel attempting to target terrorists and accidentally hitting civilians.
1: Israel is effectively doing the same because Gaza is the most densely populated region in the world. There are 15,000 people per square mile. So does Hamas get immunity
2: because they're there? So Hamas gets immunity. Israel
1: Israel has killed 3,500 children in the past three weeks. That's more children. That's more children than have died in conflicts around the world in each of the last four years.
2: So just to be clear, your logic is that if you're a terrorist group located in a densely populated community and you hide behind civilians, you are now immune. Where are the children meant to go? So you're immune. Okay, that's a violation of the Geneva Conventions, but okay. You're you're now mute. Your logic is that if you're a Hamas terrorist...
1: Sorry, since 2005, 23 out of every 24 conflict deaths have been Palestinian. I don't see any moral equivalency there. It's clearly unjust what the IDF has been doing to the Palestinians because there's a vast disparity between the number of Palestinians being killed and the number of Israelis. I
2: mean, I would certainly hope that Israel is killing more Hamas members. This isn't a
6: conflict. This isn't a conflict. This is one-sided ethnic cleansing.
2: Again. I'm just asking you, if based on the numbers, more Germans died than Brits in World War II, did that mean that British, the British were wrong in World War II? Because they did. Many more Germans died than Brits. Based on the numbers, does that mean that Britain was wrong in World War II?
1: Britain wasn't bombing civilian civilians. <laughs>
2: There's a clear you, you difference. Should, you, should talk to, you should talk to the people in Dresden, but There's you can't because they're dead. There's
1: a clear difference. Well, I agree that war is horrible, but this is not a just war. What Israel is doing is not a just war. There is a difference between Wait, fighting oh, the Nazis. So it, is,
2: so it is not There's a difference difference just war to, it is not a just war. When you fight a war against people who murder 1,500 civilians and take 233 of them, at last count, captive into tunnels, it is not a just war to obliterate them. Please Isra- name a just war.
6: Israel's
1: been killing civilians for the past 75 years. And there was no headlines about it. And there was, nobody said that the Palestinians would just retaliation. Israel does not
2: purposefully kill civilians. Palestinian terrorists do.
1: Israel has if, not purposefully killed put civilians. Are you tomorrow, to a, that statement? If Israel
2: put down its guns tomorrow, there would be a second holocaust. If the Palestinians put down their guns tomorrow, there would be a Palestinian state.
0: And that pretty much sums it up. And that's why this is a war between the civilized world that wants a fair solution and those who just want it all their own way. Add Islamist jihad to the mix and you get October 7. This is an existential question for Israel. Let's hope it doesn't become one for all of us. One thing is for sure. The West can't survive this culture of moral ambiguity that we've descended into. If we continue to believe that our values aren't better and worth defending, we will lose everything. US President Joe Biden has publicly supported a pause in the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Previously, the White House had said it'd consider a humanitarian pause to let aid in. It outright refused to back a ceasefire, saying that that will only help Hamas. Biden said he supported a two-state solution and has from the very beginning. He said, the fact of the matter is that Hamas is a terrorist organization, a flat-out terrorist organization. Finally, the Egyptians have opened the Rafah crossing on their border with Gaza at last, but only pre-approved people who were checked off a list one by one were allowed to pass into Egypt. There were 34 Australians on that list, but not all of the approved Australians had been able to get to the border post or had decided not to try. 23 did get through though. 51 trucks carrying aid went the other way, but here's what I don't understand. Why won't the Arab world, with all of its oil wealth, unite to fund and support Egypt in building a refugee camp on the Gaza border to help innocents who want to flee. Well, that answer is, they don't trust any Palestinian that might enter Egypt is not from Hamas. The Arab world simply prefers this to always be Israel's problem. And they can use the persecution of the palestinians to make enemies out of the jews whenever they need to divert attention away from troubles at home like the mullahs of iran are doing now they're unpopular with the people of iran right now the, the mullahs who lead the place the people want more liberty and they're sick of the authoritarian regime that they live under saudi arabia was about to sign its peace deal with israel and join the abraham accords Iran and Saudi Arabia are in constant battle for supremacy in the Middle East. Iran would become increasingly isolated if that deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel went ahead. So they want a conflict that makes Israel into the bad guys. It's hard to keep across all this stuff, I know, but there is one truth that you can be certain of. All the suffering we're seeing, the humanitarian suffering of children, is not the work of Israel. It's all on Hamas on both sides of the border it rests squarely with Hamas and the other Islamist radical organizations in the region and with the ideology of jihad itself an ideology that loves death as they say as we love life an ideology that we cannot tolerate any longer if we want to survive in a world of biological and nuclear weapons artificial intelligence and rapidly advancing technologies. The left wing media are freaking out this week that classical liberals and conservatives are daring to hold a global conference in London. The first ever ARC conference created by Dr Jordan Peterson and hailed by some as a new annual think tank meeting that might balance out the globalism and socialism underpinning the annual World Economic Forum. ARC was held in London from Monday to Wednesday this week and thanks to ADH TV you can enjoy a whole slew of the fantastic presentations and speeches from some of the world's best speakers and thinkers. We're carrying the conference for you on demand here on adh.tv totally for free so do check it out. Well predictably the left-wing media are doing all they can to make the ARC conference sound evil Uh, This really is getting tiring, folks. They did it to CPAC. Every time conservatives or classical liberals meet, uh, publications like the the, uh, socialist online Guardian newspaper start their propaganda machine and they start to wheel out all the usual tropes. This week, The Guardian Australia howled in protest that former Prime Ministers Tony Abbott and John Howard are among six Australians who've joined a global group fronted by Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson and backed by a pro-Brexit hedge fund billionaire and a Dubai-based investment group. Oh no, not Jordan Peterson, not some people who are pro-Brexit. Oh no, that's not allowed. They're not an investment group based in the Middle East. Ooh, that must be bad. Honestly, The Guardian Australia reads like a tragic undergraduate university newspaper written by 20 year olds who've just discovered Marxism in the past week. It really requires an absolute lobotomy to consume the drivel that they pump out. And I think their day is done. The day of Aussies seeing only one way of looking at the world is over. So back to the real news, about 1500 academics, business and government leaders, media and thinkers attended the inaugural ARC conference in London this week. Many more than six people from Australia went along. I personally know of 10 very high profile people that went along. Jordan Peterson opened the gathering with this explanation of ARC's purpose.
7: Why ARC? Why the Alliance for Responsible Citizenship? Well, the ARC, I suppose, is our movement into the future. And that begs a question, which is how should we move into the future? How should we conceptualize the future? Or perhaps even what is the responsible way to conceptualize the future? Now, this is a complicated problem and it, it shouldn't be taken lightly.
0: Dr. Peterson says the future is a very uncertain place and it's open to multiple interpretations by different people looking at it in different ways.
7: One interpretation is that we live in a world that's characterized by intrinsic scarcity and terror, that we must be apprehensive in the face of the potential apocalypse, that we need to batten down the hatches and restrict, that we need to subject ourselves to an ever-increasing level of control, that we need to cower and demoralize our young people because there's not enough to go around and the devil take the hindmost. And I'm not a fan of that, particular stance, and I don't think that it's, I think it's untrue, I think it's unnecessary, I think it's cowardly, and I think it's manipulative.
0: Dr Peterson says we do have reason to be apprehensive about the future. We are fragile, mortal, and vulnerable creatures, and we are all gonna die one day.
7: And so you might think, well, why not despair in the face of that, and why not turn away in cowardice and confusion and terror why not give up all hope and responsibility? Why not abdicate that to those who might help, what? Provide us with what we want as a consequence of our whims and alleviate and alleviate our divine responsibility?
0: Dr. Peterson then invoked one of the most philosophically profound books of the Christian Old Testament and Jewish Hebrew Bible, the book of Job the story of a man upon whom all the worst possible fates in life all seem to descend all at once. Dr. Peterson told the ARC opening session that that is the burden all of us will bear, at least sometime in our lives, being pushed to the limits of what we can tolerate, wondering how we can possibly go on.
7: We have the responsibility, and not the naivety, right? the responsibility to face an uncertain future with faith and courage and that faith doesn't mean the willingness to believe preposterous stories designed for naive children it's the faith that's necessary to confront the future properly is indistinguishable from courage Like, what could be? Well, the worst we can possibly imagine. What else could be? The best we could possibly hope for. How do we determine which of those two potentialities make themselves manifest? Well, we do that as a consequence of faith. We make the presumption that despite the evidence that might present itself to us about the fundamental hopelessness and meaninglessness of existence to take the nihilistic stance, that that the fundamental essential aspect of being itself and of human being is positive and noble and worthy and to act, to act in accordance with that as an axiom, to decide that that's worth staking yourself on because you're going to stake yourself on something or you'll stake yourself on nothing and that's not a wise decision. And so maybe we stake ourselves on courage and say that despite our limitations and the magnitude of the task that besets us that unbeknownst to us and in a mysterious manner we have the capacity if we conduct ourselves properly to make the best of anything that presents itself to us to make the very desert bloom and that's a different vision than a zero sum the zero sum malthusian nightmare that's been presented to us
0: Dr. Peterson's whole opening speech is here on ADH TV for free for you to watch later and I strongly recommend it. It's excellent and taking clips out of it just doesn't do it justice. But there's a little bit of it, a little bit of uh, the good bits for you to have a look at anyway. The ARC conference was officially opened by Baroness Philippa Stroud. She's a member of the House of Lords in the UK and a member of the UK Conservative Party and co-founder of a think tank called the Centre for Social Justice.
6: There was once a day in Western nations where we took seriously the extraordinary value of every single human being. The fact that each person was made in the image of the divine, that profoundly impacted the very foundations of Western civilization.
0: Baroness Stroud says it was as this truth permeated our societies that the pillars on which our societies were erected were built.
6: It was also once recognised that society works best when those pillars of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom to meet and to gather, freedom to sell and exchange are honoured.
0: Oh dear, don't remind The Guardian, the ABC or our university social science departments of that. They think all the freedoms that we enjoy just fell out of the sky and it'll be taken for granted. Philippa Stroud then went on to remind us of the very important social contract that European enlightenment values and the British system of law and government are built upon. Something that we've been forgetting to teach kids at school and in our unis for about uh, 50 years or so.
6: These freedoms led to an understanding that if I worked hard, and invested my time, my energy and money into an entity that my right to what I created was protected. And the rule of law would be upheld and the democratic order would be established.
0: And this is what a lot of people on the left forget when they cry that they want to tax you, that they want to redistribute wealth, that they want to take land off you and give it back to the traditional owners they forget that the blood, sweat and tears that people have invested into developing, growing and building things has to be paid back. That if it isn't paid back, the natural order will kick in and people will stop bothering to develop and build things. And if our goal as a society is to get our best and brightest people producing as much value and wealth and health as possible for the rest of us, That we need to reward their striving and their thriving and not steal the fruits of their hard work through high taxes for redistribution. Allow the best and brightest to manage the wealth that they have earned. Allow them to invest it and make those decisions. Don't give the money to politicians and bureaucrats who haven't been stressed by the test of life's challenges to then make the decisions, people who've spent their lives theorizing about the best ways to spend other people's money. Because if you do that, the best and brightest are just gonna give up and go home. And then we all suffer.
6: We are aware that we are meeting at a time when many of our nations are internally divided, where intolerance is on the rise and where we are facing a geostrategic threat rooted in the weakness of the West. And over the next three days, we will investigate how we have arrived at this defining moment of our societies. We're going to debate what needs to be renewed. And finally, we're going to identify a clear path forward full of strength, hope, and vision.
0: Baroness Stroud said that she's asked many members of the ARC Advisory Board why they are committed to being involved with the organisation.
6: The overwhelming response I received was this is a civilizational moment. There is a lot at stake. But also that we can't just wait for someone else to act. We all need to take responsibility. We all need to play our part in rebuilding a better world. If we don't act, who will? But we are also extraordinarily hopeful. We are convinced that decline is not inevitable, that there is a compelling hope-filled vision for the future. We possess the knowledge that truth does exist and can be found, that foundations can be rebuilt, that people are valuable and that the long arc of history bends towards justice.
0: She very clearly defined the civilizational moment that we're now in.
6: When one generation no longer esteems its own heritage and fails to pass the torch to its own children, it is saying, in essence, that the very foundational principles and experiences that make it the society that it is are no longer valid, many of us would say that is the moment that we are standing in now.
0: Philip Stroud told the delegates that what's required when this happens in history and a society has lost its way is for leaders to arise to show that they've not forgotten the discarded legacy. She says the vision for ARC is to build a community of people with courage and strength who will rebuild the foundations of our nations on a story of optimism that sees a future of abundance and opportunity rather than scarcity and decline.
6: So ladies and gentlemen, as we open this inaugural ARC conference, we invite you to go on the journey from darkness, fragmentation, division, polarisation and intolerance to a better story One that is rooted in the infinite value of every human being, built on the freedoms of freedom of conscience, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, and woven together with kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control by a responsible people.
0: God, it's nice to hear some positive things about the Western world and Western culture for a change, isn't it? Baroness Philippa Stroud there, opening the 2023 inaugural ARC conference in London. Well, I hate to break it to Simon Holmes-A-Court and the Teals and the Airhead Greens and Chris Bowen and all the other backers of solar, wind and hydropower, but you've backed the wrong horse and Aussies are beginning to wake up to the fact. It seems support for nuclear power is on the rise. People realise that it's proven, tested, affordable and efficient, and it's the best choice if we're truly concerned about CO2 levels in the atmosphere causing climate change especially for a country like Australia, that's so rich in the resources needed for nuclear. Jason Morrison, who's been doing a terrific job filling in for Alan Jones the past couple of weeks here on ADH TV, had an excellent segment on the show on Wednesday night that I highly recommend checking out, in which he revealed some pretty interesting polling data.
3: People are not going to cop crap when they can barely survive. It doesn't mean the battle is won, far from it, but it does mean we are turning a bit of a corner here. I want to show you something, this is some polling from the very left-leaning union strategy machine called Essential, Essential Media. They're an organisation that advises the union movement, the Labor Party on a whole lot of things. And they constantly run social polling that flows into the hearts and minds of senior figures in the Labor Party. And don't think for a matter that this is just a, you know, another poll. These are the sort of people who help put policy together. And I think what this polling is going to show is that Australians, are waking up, have a look. After more than a decade of paying far too much for anything, suddenly we get a poll that says, do you support nuclear power? Guess what? The trend is yes. 50% of people in that poll, the top line, support the idea or don't really care. There's only 33%, the red line below it, that actually oppose. That blue line, 50% is huge and that it is growing and going is telling us that there is something going on in the community, that people are actually saying, you know what, risk versus reward, cheap power versus the risk of nuclear, I don't think the risk's that sufficient, let's give it a go. And 50% of people are there, and there's a whole lot of people that actually don't care, and there's a a third that think we should not go anywhere near it. So nuclear is demonised by dimwits like Chris Bowen. That's what you're dealing with, Chris. Wake up. Australians are waiting. Now they'll say it's all those right-wing voters. Not true. 43% are Labor voters. 40% are Greens voters. I'm not kidding. This is the essential polling. They support nuclear power. Let's move on. Another graph here. I wonder how that went down in Chris Bowen's office. Probably the same way when they saw this one we showed you yesterday, just really quickly. This is a graph that tells us that people have had enough, enough of doing things for the sake of doing things for climate change. See the top one sloping downwards? It's always meeting up with another one. Not doing enough versus doing enough. They're almost the same. That's a worry because that is going down, down, down. People can smell the bullshit. The tide has turned,
0: finally. Jason Morrison there, filling in for Alan Jones this week here on ADH-TV, and I hope we're going to see a lot more of Jason in the future. Meanwhile, back over at the ARC conference in London, a leading Australian energy expert says Australia is foolishly making all the same policy mistakes that Germany did, which have led that country into a serious energy crisis. Professor Stephen Wilson from the University of Queensland attended an energy roundtable conference in Berlin last week on Europe's management of energy. He says the experts at that meeting discussed how Russia was trying to freeze Europe to death last winter, but thankfully didn't manage to do so. Dr. Wilson says the blowing up of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia to Europe remains a mystery. It's become common folklore that the Americans and Brits may have done the deed because they don't want Europe to become dependent upon Russian gas. But there are equally strong theories emerging that it may actually have been the work of the Russians themselves to try to freeze Europe. Professor Stephen Wilson spoke to ADHTV's Fred Paul in London this week.
5: There's been a, a, an official you know, Swedish government sub, submarine investigation, shall we say, and they've taken parts of it back to the lab to analyse and all the rest, but there has been no official announcement about who blew up the pipeline. Right. There is a theory that Russia did that deliberately.
8: Uh, Europe has survived so far. What is the uh, prognosis for Europe now?
5: Um, well, it's it, the I think there's a view that the um, the energy element of the war will intensify.
3: This is um, the war in Ukraine. Yeah, you, you,
5: and I think you you have to remember that G- Germany has taken um, you know a hit. You know they've closed uh, plants down, industries down. Um, so there's economic suffering to you know, make sure that they could get through with other supplies, uh, and they managed to keep you know to stay
0: warm last winter. Dr Wilson says German energy policy has been a disaster and Australia is now making exactly the same mistakes. Well, they've backed themselves
5: into a corner with their energy policies and they've been pursuing these three big um, policy settings for, let's say, best part of 20 years, uh, which is naive over-reliance on wind and solar, number one. Number two, not properly respecting or understanding the importance of gas security of supply and number three, rejecting nuclear energy. And the, and the reason that this is, uh, surprisingly perhaps, the striking thing is that in Australia, we are copying, if you will, those same three big energy policy blunders.
8: Okay, let's look at that then. So we are, we are behind them. They've already gone down that road. Mm. How badly have they suffered as a result? And are we heading in the same direction?
5: Yeah, we, we are heading in the same direction. Um, There's a tendency to think that we've got natural advantages Germany doesn't have. We are an energy exporter, you know, Mm -hmm. coal, LNG, uranium. Uh, Germany is an energy importer. Um, But they've got some advantages we don't have. Like, you know, they're a European country that's part of a large interconnected European system. We in Australia are an island. So the way that um, the consequences play out for Australia will be different in the details than the way they play out for Germany but the basic mistakes that are being made are the same.
0: Stephen Wilson says Australia has built a lot of resilience into its power grid, which is why we aren't feeling the effects of the bad policies yet. It's like, you know,
5: oh, I could drive around without my seatbelt. Oh, I could, you know, drive above the speed limit. Oh, I could, you know, drink and drive, you know, and oh, I survived. Everything was fine. I haven't had an accident yet. But what you're doing is you're increasing the risk of disaster. Yeah. That's essentially what we're doing in
0: the power system. That's adjunct professor Stephen Wilson. He's a doctor of medicine and a PhD, speaking in London to ADHTV's Fred Paul this week. Chris Bowen, are you listening? You know, this bad government and woeful energy policy has real-world consequences. Foodbank is a charity that works with more than two and a half thousand other charities and almost three thousand school breakfast programs to get over 82 million meals out to people who need a hand. It's like a wholesale collection, storage and distribution business operation, a charity that serves charities. Well, Food Bank came out with some pretty disturbing statistics last week that really show how bad the cost of living crisis is and how much it's hurting regular Aussies. According to the Food Bank Hunger Report 2023, 3.7 million households went hungry at some stage in Australia in the past year. That is an extraordinary number. It's more than all the households in Sydney and Melbourne combined. Brianna Casey is the CEO of Food Bank Australia, and she says hunger in Australia is not only happening, but who it is happening to is changing.
8: We've seen a really alarming trend over the last 12 months where more and more people across Australia are finding themselves making unenviable choices about where they're applying their scarce resources. We've seen growth in the number of people needing food relief. We've also seen changes in how often they're needing food relief. And I think what will shock so many people out there is that of all the food insecure households across Australia, 77 per cent of them are experiencing food insecurity for the very first time. They've never had this confront their household before. It's quite shocking.
0: Brianna Casey says the housing crisis and the rising cost of housing itself is at the heart of the problem.
8: I think what is going to surprise a lot of people is the true reality of what's happening with the housing crisis in Australia. We know that half of all renters and a third of all mortgage holders are now struggling to put a meal on the table. It is a situation that's become a crisis in Australia. And when we are looking at the cost of living crisis, this is no longer about the cost of living. This is the cost of surviving.
0: Foodbank reports that more than half of food insecure households have someone in paid work, 60%. And those experiencing food insecurity for the first time are younger, with mid to higher incomes.
8: It's the mums and dads who are going home at the end of the day saying they've had a big lunch at work and they don't need dinner because there isn't enough food to feed themselves and their children. It's the university students who are going entire days without eating. It's the elderly who suddenly think that it's okay to have one meal a day.
0: I mean, it's unbelievable that this is happening in such a wealthy country. It really takes, you know, some pretty amazingly bad management from our politicians and from our bureaucrats, especially our bureaucrats, to get a country like Australia, a country as rich as Australia into such a ridiculous situation. Now, once again, it seems to me that big government is the problem with red tape and green tape getting in the road of property developers who want to get stuck into building new homes. It's some of the uh, less ethical big businesses perhaps who like the housing supply shortage because it pushes up prices. Although there's no money really to be made if no one can afford what you're selling. We need to let small and medium sized businesses do their thing to get the areas around train stations and public transport hubs cleared for small scale, well-designed apartment projects. And we need to get things happening fast If we're going to continue with these massive levels of immigration we really need to get more of the solution creating power into the hands of everyday aussies in small business and in the not-for-profits to fix these problems god knows that big government is just incompetent at getting a lot of these things done properly on time and on budget speaking of the bureaucrat class last week we talked a lot on the show about the tantrum of the yes campaign and its supporters following their referendum loss, blaming everyone and everything except themselves. But that tantrum is just symptomatic of a class of people suffering from a really worrying level of self-entitlement and a sense of moral superiority in our country. It's not just a few indigenous radicals, but a pretty big group of Aussies of all colors and creeds particularly our university educated under 45s and specifically those that I call the Australian bureaucrat class. This class tends to live and work in our inner cities and lurk within our big government and corporate institutions. They're not tradies or small business people or frontline emergency responders, they would never survive in that environment because that would require daily performance measurement and instant accountability. This bureaucrat class are the class who make all the rules. They stifle the productivity of the producers in our society, making life more difficult for us. Red tape and green tape are their tools of power. They inhabit government departments, managerial offices, corporate HR, legal, compliance, procurement, and PR departments, law firms, the justice system, consulting firms, and training companies. In ancient Chinese society and in modern China, these were the people who held the chops, the official government stamps that were needed to authorize everything and were used for control. They mirror the archetypes of the British civil service, who delight in hindering, meddling, policing and enforcing the yes minister types, the control freaks, justifying their lack of productivity and true success in life with political gameplay and the wielding of arbitrary power. Worse than the wealth that they prevent individuals in the nation producing is the wealth that they steal for themselves. The worst example of this post-referendum was the news that the Queensland state government of Labour's Anastasia Palaszczuk was offering any public servant who felt they needed it five days off with full pay to mourn the loss. That such an idea could be floated with any level of seriousness, let alone be implemented reveals how severe this gap between the rulers and the ruled in Australia has become. What small business person or tradie could afford such a personal self-indulgence as five days off to mourn a referendum that didn't go their way? Further, what small or medium-sized business could afford to offer such a benefit to its employees and therefore could compete in the market for top talent with government? What the voice vote laid so plainly bare for all of us to see was that our country is roughly divided in two. Those who know the cost of things and produce and those who make the rules and take. The first and most glaring indication of this bureaucrat class being completely out of touch was the inverse nature of the voice vote in the Australian Capital Territory. It was sixty-one thirty-nine versus the national vote, 39-61. That was obvious on election night and is perhaps all that needs to be said on the matter. But a deeper dive into the electorate by electorate vote unveils two clear dividing trends. Tertiary educated versus non-tertiary educated and high income versus low to middle income. Of the 151 federal electorates, only 29 saw a yes victory. The inner cities had the widest margins. In my view, this proves the long held perspective that those of us with a tertiary education are not necessarily better at analytical thinking and reasoning, but rather we have merely been exposed to a different ideological framework. The dominance of postmodern neo-Marxist identity politics, call it whatever you like, it's the worldview of the left in academia has with the boomer generations and their children, come to dominate the halls of power and control in this country. As if the response to COVID hadn't laid this bare enough at the beginning of this decade, millions of producers rendered powerless and at the mercy of authoritarian legal enforcement of rules made by that bureaucrat class. Now, before I'm accused of Marxist style oversimplification of the world into classes, I'd hate to do that, Let me clarify that I believe there are many degrees and combinations of these factors lurking within wider society and perhaps even within individuals. Not all public servants for example sit in the bureaucrat class especially those on the front line and those who contribute to the nation's productivity rather than obstruct it. But the data from this referendum clearly shows we've got a worrying disconnect between the producers and the administrators and this isn't sustainable. There can be only one of two outcomes. Firstly, the bureaucrat class could double down in anger and heighten the push to further regulation and control, causing the producers to give up, retire to the beach or move abroad. This would lead to stagnation in innovation, production and wealth, tax revenue will plummet, debt will rise and the bureaucrats will run out of other people's money to spend. Or the bureaucrat class get the message, restrain themselves Unwind excessive regulation and control, drop identity politics-related programs, and seek to properly serve the producer class instead of ruling over them. This will cause producers to re-engage, build businesses, and create employment, drive innovation, production, and wealth. Tax revenue will be adequate to sustain uh, the uh, this, this trimmed-down bureaucracy, and there might even be enough left over to pay down our crippling debt. But if I were a betting man, sadly, I'd say the naive response of the referendum's losers and the subsequent push now for misinformation laws suggest that the control freaks will stand triumphant atop a pile of ruins and rubble in a decade or so. And the first scenario is sadly more likely to play out. But we live in hope, especially after ARC. And those of us working for the second outcome must carry on fighting each battle as it arises. Imagine though how great Australia could be if we united behind true, laissez-faire, hands-off, free market liberalism, low tax and minimal regulation. Alas, we suffer at the hands of those who believe that they know what is best for all of us and think that they have a monopoly on good. <laughs> And that, my friends, is all we have time for this week on the other side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday, November the 3rd, 2023. Uh, The ARC Conference is totally available. So much of it, so much content right here on ADH.tv if you want to watch some of the great uh, speeches from that. Uh, We're going to continue in the coming weeks on the other side Australia right up until the end of the year. Uh, We're going to keep uh, bringing you segments from that. Uh, conference because I think there's some really great stuff there and we can't cram it all into one show. So we're going to have a little arc segment probably in every show that we do from now until uh, we close up for 2023. But have a great week and uh, we will catch you on the other side of Australia next week.